Hey everyone, welcome back to Honesty Hour. This is our fourth podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Rogni Kathur, and I'm here with Ethan Wong, my other co-host. Hey guys. Today is a pretty exciting day. Honestly, I can't wait to jump into this podcast um, because we have a professional um, who specializes in mental health and psychology, so it'll be pretty interesting. Yeah, it's uh, really exciting to have someone who's professional in the mental health scene at USC. Yeah, this will be like a very interesting take on our podcast today. Honestly, it's just, yeah, it's something I've been looking forward to all this entire week. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, it's kind of been a long week with uh, school and just all these different final projects that are due. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely really excited to hear from her. Yeah, there is a lot of go- going on with school right now. Um, yeah, have you been using any type of like coping mechanisms to kind of help you get through that, to stay organized? Yeah, um, I've been journaling a little bit and uh, practicing like some really short meditation routines. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's been something I've like I used to do, but it um, was kind of on and off because it's hard to maintain. Yeah. But uh, how about you? How how's your week been? Um, for me, I would say there's definitely been some like ups and downs. Um, I had a few interviews actually for jobs and then um, a test this week, so just kind of the usual stress that comes with life right now, being a senior. But um, yeah, I just actually moved back to my apartment in LA, um, so that's kind of been a process. A stressful process um I honestly like didn't really realize how much stuff I had till um I moved to this new place just because I had to pack everything up and kind of just go through everything and get rid of stuff I didn't need but finally settled down um yeah uh just kind of didn't realize yeah how much stress that was going to be <laughs> yeah uh is there any way that you dealt with all that stress I think one thing, yeah, food was a big one. That's not the best way to handle stress, but yeah, I was mostly doing that. Um, and then another one was actually asking for help. Um, I realized actually during this time, that was something I've been kind of having a problem with is um, I'm pretty independent in a lot of situations and um, kind of don't really ask for help when I do need it. So um, this was kind of a time I really did need that help. So during this time, I just had to let go and I relied on my brother and um, he actually was like one to kind of explain to me that there's not there's nothing wrong with asking for help. Um, and that is something we've talked about on this podcast, if you remember. Um, just like the it's a big step, but um, it's definitely necessary and it's hard to do yourself, obviously. It's better like it's definitely easier said than done. But kind of once I did it, I knew I needed it and we finished the job and now I'm moved in. <laughs> Well, jumping into our podcast as per usual, please subscribe and follow our Instagram. Our Instagram is USC Honesty Hour Podcast underscore. And then also our website is USC Honesty slash my site. Um, we will be making this shorter so it's easier for you guys to go to, but just right now, bear with us. Um, so, as I said today, today's pretty exciting. Um, we're going to be joined by Dr. Eden. Agonifer. Um, she's a clinical psychologist and faculty who is part of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Keck School of Medicine of USC. Um, she received a doctorate in clinical psychology and master's in intercultural studies from the Ford Theological Seminary. Um, she earned her bachelor's in human development and family sciences from the University of Texas at Austin. Um, she also con- con- completed her postdoctorate fellowship at Occidental College um, she has a variety of different professional interests, um, including holistic health, identity development, diversity, multiculturalism, 
historically marginalized populations, health and education, equity, college mental health, perfectionism, anxiety, depression, trauma and recovery, spirituality, and cognitive behavioral therapy. So there's a variety of interests that she has. She has a plethora of experience and education. So it's really exciting to have here. So in today's episode, we're gonna discuss how she began to pursue her interest in clinical psychology, also um, USC student mental health. Um, and then she'll also be kind of giving us an insight into the types of services provided by um, the counseling services at USC. Uh, so please welcome Dr. Agonifer. Hello, hello. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Yeah. How about you? I'm doing good. Um, yeah, it's, I guess like okay is actually a perfect way to describe it just with midterms going on and everything. But yeah. Well, thanks for being with us today. Um, Ethan, do you want to kind of get us started? Yeah. All right. So um, for our first question, we wanted to ask, uh, can you discuss your college experience at UT Austin? And did this have any influence on your interest today? And to follow up on that, did you notice a need for more mental health resources on your campus? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, t totally. Um, I don't know how much you know about the University of Texas at Austin or sort of the Southern culture. Mm -hmm. um, so UT Austin is a predominantly white institution. Um, and so my experiences there definitely had an impact on uh, sort of my desire to pursue this field, but also um, it kind of gave me an understanding of like what was available on campus for students in general, what wasn't. Um, and so again, be, it being a predominantly white institution, it definitely presented some challenges for historically marginalized students. Uh, when I attended UT, we had about, I believe around 44,000 students that attended the institution. It's one of the well-known public um, universities in Texas. And so um, of the 44,000, we had about 2% that were, that identified as black or African descent. And so I, I was in that category. There weren't very many students that looked like me. Um, I initially started out uh, wanting to pursue a career in the pharmacy field. And so um, a lot of my uh, science classes, literally I would be either one or one of two black students in a classroom of like 200 students or 400. And so those experiences definitely shaped sort of my own perception of who I was in that space and what I represented and who I represented. And so uh, that definitely kind of made me think a lot about the psychological impact for historically marginalized students as they're, as they're navigating spaces that just weren't necessarily designed with them in mind. And so that was definitely one. It was also academically rigorous. So uh, that's why I love working at USC because I feel like there are a lot of similarities in sort of what I experienced going through college and what I see with my students. Um, while I was in college starting my freshman year, I was actually working as a mentor or tutor for uh, local high school students. So uh, these were sort of um, sort of disadvantaged, under-resourced high schools. And so I had the opportunity to go in a couple times a week to mentor students and that experience definitely showed me like the need for mental health resources, not just for college students, for just communities in general. Um, and so that's where my passion started. Other than that, when I was going to college, counseling was just not talked about at all. Uh, I was going through some even personally challenging experiences and no one talked to me about going to the counseling center. 
uh, I didn't even know where it was. And so th that was another piece that made me realize that there's just lack of awareness. I'm sure there's definitely stigma, but um, it wasn't something that, you know, was openly discussed back then as it is now. Thanks for sharing. Um, I guess one thing you touched on was the Southern culture. Um, could you go into a little bit like what that was like for you? And then I guess like one of the things that kind of, um, when I saw that you were at UT Austin, um, one of the things that has been a problem with the community there, I guess, is that um, the whole um, memorializing the Confederate um, figures with the statues that are all um, surrounding um, the campus. So um, could you talk a little bit about that? Um, Absolutely. As you know and see in the news, that's typically some of the challenges that uh, we sort of experience in the South, sometimes in the Midwest, depending on what state and what city. Um, and so what I would say in general is, um, yeah, there's always been that challenge. So I, I actually wasn't born in the U.S., so that's something I was going to touch on later on. But uh, I was born in Ethiopia. My family and I immigrated to Texas when I was 11. Uh, and so it, it, I don't know if I'll call the experience a culture shock because I think I was so young and I was just excited to, to be with peers. But I think it was much later, like in high school and college, that I really learned more about like sort of the overt, explicit uh, racism that was just there. Um, I think in some ways when I was younger, I was sort of protected from that uh, because of maybe the, the community that I grew up in, uh, where we lived, and me and my family. But um, going to, honestly, UT Austin really opened up my eyes, even when I was in high school. Uh, so I was in, on the AP track. And so I was always in classes where it would be like 12 or 13 students. And again, I would be, you know, one of two or three black students in the class. And I never fully understood why that was. I just thought, uh, you know, I'm gifted and I'm special, but it was in college that I was actually able to understand the historical context of Texas, what it represents, and then also the treatment of people of color. Um, and so it was interesting because I think maybe living there, some things were just pretty much normalized. You weren't surprised when someone's rude or racist. Uh, coming to California was actually more of a culture shock for me because I felt like uh, it's a diverse space. You know, people should sort of be aware and they should be kind and nice. But actually, there's a lot of implicit and explicit racism uh, and bias that takes place here as well. I think in the South, you, you see it very easily going back to your point of like there may be some Confederate statues. Or I remember when I was in college, um, a student group hosted like a bake sale. Uh, and, and you can literally Google this and you, you'll find it. Uh, and on their cardboard for the advertisement, they put like, uh, they had cookies and baked goods, of course, on the table. Like you pay $1 for white, 75 cents for Asian, uh, 50 cent for um, uh, Latinx and 25 cents for black. Like this was their cardboard that was right in front of the big cell. And this was around the political season. And so having the past by that table, you know, walking to class. It was just things that you, it, it, it shocked you, but at the same time, something about it was just like, this is anyways, right? Um, so we were sort of, we grew up in that environment. And even in college, I actually minored in Afri African-American studies because I felt like I just needed to know more, especially as a person who 
who was born overseas and, and you know, partly lived in the in Texas. Um, that was the moment there I felt like I'm not quite understanding why these things are playing out and why it's allowed. Um, and so again, um, those were just experiences that tremendously shaped who, who I became and the work that I do today. Could you also discuss like some of your other interests, like holistic health, identity development, diversity and multiculturalism, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I talk a lot about holistic health primarily because I feel like we're whole beings, right? Um, as a, a clinical psychologist, of course, when people come see me, they're, they're seeing me for psychological, emotional related stresses, but I tend to view health from a holistic lens. So I typically tend to assess like what else is needed other than, you know, mental health needs. Sometimes it could be like a physical need. Maybe someone needs to go to a doctor or there's some uh, self-care practices that fall in, in physical realm that need to be paid attention to. Um, I also assess like um, you know, sort of a person's social well-being, um, spiritual well-being, and academic and professional well-being. Um, so for that reason, I just don't stop at looking at, you know, psychological distresses. I feel like all of these things are interrelated. Um, so this, that's where the holistic emphasis comes. Um, other than that, um, identity development, uh, I feel like it's one of the main tasks that young adults and college students try to achieve at this stage, whether they're an undergrad, grad school, or professional school. Um, so I have a lot of passion and really understanding how do people get to that place, whether where they're evaluating, understanding what they need. Uh, diversity and multiculturalism, to me, I would say is just like my heart and passion. Going back to what I shared, um, it's my lived experience, so I had to really understand what's happening. But beyond that, I learned to think about other people's experience. And, and the question that I always ask myself is, do people feel seen and known? Do they feel like they're included? And so that's sort of, you know, my passion. It's always connected to my profession, but it's also, like I said, a personal experience. Um, and so I'm always passionate about understanding that. And like I said, um, being born in Ethiopia, living in Texas, I've studied abroad uh, in Europe, and then now living on the West Coast. There's just a lot of cultural experiences I've learned uh, that have helped me understand the importance of diversity and multiculturalism. Great. Um, I kind of also wanted to go into talking about the major that you chose in college too. Um, human development was the major you chose, and um, I think it could also be beneficial to talk about how you came to that major. Did, is that did you know you wanted to do that right away? Or were you kind of, a lot of college students kind of struggle to figure out what they want to do right away. So maybe you could talk about that process. Mm -hmm. Uh, So like most teenagers, you know, I thought I knew exactly what I wanted. Uh, And definitely there's some cultural pieces connected to it as well. So I felt like I needed to be in the healthcare field. I I have a brother that's a doctor, uh, primary care physician. I have a sister that's a pharmacist. So I wanted to be like them and uh, also wanted to make my family proud by doing something in the medical field. So when I first got to college, as I mentioned, I wanted to do pharmacy. So I was on the pre-pharmacy track. Um, And so that's kind of where I was. It was not until halfway through college that I actually realized it wasn't it for me. Uh, There was just some disconnect about not liking, you know, OCHEM classes and, uh, 
I took all the way up to Calc 2, so I don't think I math as much of a problem. It was more of like the, the science and the biology classes. What am I doing here? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what changed my interest. But honestly, when I decided to change my major, it had a lot to do with what I was doing as a mentor, as a tutor. It just felt like that was, I was such, people kept saying like, I was just so naturally good at like talking to people, listening to people that I felt like, well, is this what I'm supposed to do then? And if so, you know, how do I change from uh, taking all of these natural science courses to maybe psychology or behavioral sciences? And so um, at the time, um, of course, our psychology degree program was in College of Liberal Arts. I was in College of Natural Sciences. So I would need to like apply to that college and transfer uh, but then I discovered that we had human development family sciences within College of Natural Sciences. So I thought, why not stay here, retain some of my, my credits, um, and just continue. And so what I loved about human development, again, just as, as the name sounds, uh, learning a lot about the developmental process. Uh, it also placed a lot on systems, particularly family systems. And so I thought, this is just like psychology. It's close enough. Um, and so that's how I ended up getting my undergrad degree in that. We also wanted to talk about your doctorate and master's degrees. Um, so uh, what was the process like for applying for your master's program and why intercultural studies? And alongside that, how about your doctorate in um, clinical psychology? Mm-hmm. Um, so my process in applying to grad school was a bit unique, uh, primarily because I, I did research in undergrad and I was telling my research advisor that I really wanted to go to a school that specialized in the integration of psychology and theology. Um, and so, you know, there was so much tension around that, like trying to understand why was that important for me? Where can I go? The cost. Um, and so those are some of the decisions that I really had to think about. So with that, I chose a fuller theological seminary. It's a school here in Pasadena, California. Um, they do a really good job of um, sort of integrating the two disciplines. So I thought it would be a good choice. Uh, applying for the do- doctoral program, of course, is the rigorous process just like any other school. Um, but you apply to a doctoral program, you get your master's along the way. So I actually have a master's in clinical psychology and then a doctorate in clinical psych. Uh, the master's in intercultural studies is separate. And that was something that I... I was really interested and became interested in once I started the program. Um, so that degree specifically sort of, again, integrates theology, social sciences, and history pretty well. Um, so that degree focuses on um, urban work in general, whether it's urban or international, and really understanding um, how are we taking care of folks who are at risk or disadvantaged, um, and, and just learning and understanding cross-cultural work. Um, so that's why I pursued that degree. And I guess with all of these different forms of education that you've had, did you have a specific job that you wanted to have once you finished all of your education? So when I finished, <laughs> um, I knew I wanted to work with youth and young adults in some capacity. I had no clue what that looked like because I felt like I've had such uh, quite a bit of experience in doing that all throughout college and even after college I worked a little bit before going to grad school and so I knew that that was like the population that I really clicked well with 
Um, so my degree actually has an emphasis in community psychology. So I knew that I wanted to work in the community setting. Uh, so when I was in grad school and I was doing different clinical rotations, I did like school-based and I was like counseling five-year-olds <laughs> just to understand what that was like. Uh, I also work in community mental health and got to really you know, work with uh, adolescents. I also did some work with um, adults and older adults. So I felt like I touched on the different stages of life. Uh, and then finally, um, a few years ago, I thought, you know, I'm really passionate about education. I love the college counseling environment. So let me try that and maybe that could be a home. And so uh, that's sort of how I landed in college counseling work. And so uh, that, that's sort of where I'm at now. Uh, but different people have different ways of getting to this work. But for me, it's always been about communities. Oftentimes in doing community mental health, um, we know a lot that they, usually there's folks don't have access to, to resources or resources are not affordable. So this is a you know, general issue, but at the community level, when I'm working with families, and especially with marginalized communities, it's factoring in all of those things and trying to make sure that people are supported. Yeah. Um, for people who might be interested in becoming a clinical psychologist, do you have any kind of advice on how you can approach that? Mm-hmm. I hope so. <laughs> you know, like I said, different people have different ways of getting there. Uh, when I was going to grad school and I had classmates who were like in their 50s and some were just barely getting out of college, some who have worked and are just returning. So the journey looks a little different for everyone. But what I would say is know your why. I say this over and over again. I currently actually teach a course to marriage and family therapy students. And my message to anybody who's interested in, in the mental health field is know your why, because it's, as you can imagine, it's not easy doing this work, right? And sometimes some people want to get into it because they feel like they're they're good at helping people or listening to people, sort of like my case. Uh, other people get into it because they, they've learned to overcome something challenging, they feel like they have something to offer. But most importantly, this is a lifelong work and commitment, um, and so knowing your why is important because there are seasons where you just get really tired. Uh, you go through compassion fatigue and things like that. So by knowing why you're doing it, I think you're able to sustain yourself. Uh, the other piece I like to talk about is do your research. Um, recently, I've actually had a few mentees reach out. I attend mentor students at various stages of their education, uh, whether they're in undergrad or grad school. And so uh, they'll reach out to me asking, like, what, what made you decide clinical psych over counseling psych or a different kind of psychology? Um, so I talk to them about my process. So do your research about the, the different types of psychology careers that you, know, you want to do and what to expect from that. And the other piece, again, is have mentors. Um, I've had mentors all throughout, you know, high school, college. Even now I have mentors. Uh, they're your people to kind of check in with and bounce ideas back and forth so that you have some guidance on that. Yeah, that's definitely something I realized is really important is um, finding those connections with people who are actually in the field you're pursuing. It can really help you give, get a perspective from someone who's a seasoned professional and also can give you a lot of advice in terms of yeah, how to get into this career, also figuring out exactly specifically what you want to get into. Because with you personally, you said that you wanted to be working with um, younger adults and the youth. 
So that would be interesting too for someone who's kind of interested in that or not even, maybe they're interested more in terms of focusing on like an older community or something like that to get your perspective. So that's really great. And it's awesome that you're actually willing to mentor others. Um, I guess kind of um, maybe going into your current position at USC, could you describe exactly what you do? Um, and then um, kind of how you got to, I mean, you kind of touched that you wanted to work um, at USC because it was very similar to um, the college you went to as well. So maybe if you wanted to highlight any other specific that'd be great too. Absolutely. Um, so currently at USC, I have different roles. Uh, so I'll start with the Counseling and Mental Health Center. Um, I'm a licensed psychologist there, so I see students who are uh, seeking support. I'm also the mental health coordinator, um, so I do quite a bit of work in uh, helping our, our center, our staff, our trainees understand the importance of multiculturalism and the work that we do. Um, so I, I tend to put on trainings for, you know, at various levels, depending on what's needed. I've done some training for students on campus as well, uh, so students will request to uh, perhaps talk about a particular multicultural issue from a mental health perspective, so that's something that I do as well. Uh, I also sit on various committees. Um, as a multicultural coordinator, I tend to oversee uh, some of our initiatives that we have as well, which I'll touch on a little bit later, but that's what I do. Um, I recently also started teaching at Rossier, so I teach uh, marriage and family therapy students. I teach a course called Counseling Through the Lifespan. Um, and so that's where I feel like everything is coming together because um, I get to be in a space where I talk to students about basically who are you as a counselor in the room or some um, multi-contextual factors that really need to be considered. So uh, helping therapists understand their own sort of developmental process throughout life, uh, their own family systems, and then, you know, as they're sitting across clients, what, what comes up? And sometimes what are some things we just need to know is, um, that tend to present conflict or attention or other times and maybe sort of a good fit. So um, I talk a lot about that. So those are the three roles I have that I really enjoy. Um, as far as kind of working at USC and why I'm there, um, I've, I've done training or work at other institutions as well. Um, so every institution has its pros and cons, uh, but USC uh, for me actually, um, such a special place. I actually completed my pre-doctoral internship at USC, so that's how I got connected. Um, so I did my training there. Uh, apart from that, there's just lots of exciting opportunities uh, to really help shape the culture. We're here in LA, uh, most diverse um, city. And so to me, it affords me just a lot of really wonderful opportunities to continue to become the therapist that I hope to become. And so, help impact systems that you know, are wanting to change or wanting to improve uh, the experience of clients and patients. Um, so in regards to USC counseling and like the mental health services, how do you think it's been changing since you've taken your position and how so? It's changed quite a bit. As you may or may not know, we've hired a lot of therapists, um, especially this last year. Um, and so that's one big piece. Uh, it was sort of like a medium-sized center when I was there uh, a while back as a pre-doctoral intern, and now it's it's a pretty large system. So one is um, we're constantly hiring clinicians to make sure that 
uh, we're meeting the demands. As you may or may not know, the demands have increased over the years, and this is the case for all colleges. It's not just unique to USC, uh, and so we have to keep up with that demand. So we're definitely hiring a lot more faculty and staff, um, and we're also launching exciting initiatives. So, for example. Uh, just this fall, we launched uh, embedded counseling within the cultural centers, uh, and I, I helped oversee that project. Uh, we started doing embedded counseling, I think, about two years or so ago. But you know, we started out with the law school, and then we're in another academic unit, sort of piloting that. But this fall, we launched uh, several clinicians to do embedded work within the uh, cultural centers. And so um, those are really exciting things. Not all schools do that. Uh, again, that that ensures that our historically marginalized students or BIPOC students are really taken care of and understood uh, and that we're trying to eliminate the barriers that, that, that these students typically face. And we're also trying to lower stigma. And so um, those are some changes that I'm really seeing. Um, I also get to work with diverse staff that have different experiences that come from different places. So that's something that I really appreciate about USC is there's also diversity uh, among the staff there. And so we get to learn from one another as we're continuing to serve students. Sorry, so you also mentioned how like, um, USC is hiring more therapists to like address like the increasing demand. Mm -hmm. um, how else is USC like trying to adapt to the current situation with uh, COVID? The current situation with COVID. Um, so we are doing telehealth, uh, which is the model that everybody shifted to. So, you know, same with medical, the same with other service, healthcare uh, service deliverers. So um, we're still seeing students. So the only thing that is impacting students sort of maybe in a negative way is we can't practice across state lines. So we do have to primarily serve those that are in the state of California. Uh, but we do, anytime a student calls us, we try to understand where they're located and how to help them access local resources. Um, so we still support students with like referrals and making sure that wherever they're at, we're able to have that service available to them. Uh, we offer less talk, which is sort of an informal opportunity to meet with the counselor. Uh, that's available to students no matter where they're located. So it could be international student or domestic student if they need to just get on this talk and talk to a counselor informally or it's not clinically then they can do that um, there's also a workshop that we offer to students on like sleep anxiety management so those are the uh, resources that students have access to even if they can't um, see like a therapist one-on-one if they're located in a different um, you know state or country um, kind of maybe going to the topic of COVID and especially what's going on in our political climate, as well as in terms of social justice. Um, how have you seen, because a lot of times, I guess, like with a lot of students, and I felt this way at one point too, a lot of students feel like they're alone when they're dealing with their mental health struggles. That's a big part of um, a reason too people just don't feel like getting help is just because they don't feel like they're there's other people who are kind of going through the same thing they are so i guess with covid as well as um with what's going on with police brutality well, how have you seen shifts in students mental health um and how, how has usc as well as like just yourself 
as a clinical psychologist been addressing those um, mental health concerns? Yeah, so absolutely. This has been such a trying time for all of us uh, since the pandemic was honestly the first time where I felt like a lot of what's happening is impacting me personally and not just professionally. Um, so I've also had to step back and think about who am I in this season? Who do I want to become? Uh, being honest about my own struggles of having to do Zoom work all day back to back, teach on Zoom. So there are a lot of challenges that are coming for all of us, uh, coming up for all of us. But more specifically, the trends that I'm seeing is there's definitely an increase in stress uh, for a lot of people, most particularly students um, as they're trying to navigate academics on a virtual platform. Um, so that's one piece. Um, Anxiety, stress, depression, these are things that are pretty common uh, among college students. And so these things are definitely exacerbated when, when there are external factors that continue to pile on sort of week after week. Um, so those are the things that I'm noticing. The other piece that as mental health professionals we're very much aware of is uh, home may not necessarily be a safe space for all, right? The assumption is, you know, we're sending students back home and they're, you know, they're, they're safe from the virus, but they'll be okay. And that's not quite the case. And so this is where, again, uh, sort of understanding people's situation, uh, not just home life, but, you know, financial concerns uh, and various issues that they may be dealing with right now, not just on their own, but with their families uh, and how to help them navigate through some of that. So uh, this has been a really challenging time, again, for some folks who may not necessarily want to be at home. They're having to be at home. For, for others, it may have been a good experience, but noticing that it could be sort of a varied experience. It's definitely Zoom fatigue, and you both probably know more than anyone just having to do that uh, quite a bit. It just takes a lot of focus, attention, and concentration. Uh, and having to do work from home all day, it feels like there's no boundary anymore, right? Uh, you're sitting in the same space. Uh, so your your structure, your schedule may be thrown off each day, each week. So it feels like, you know, pretty much every week you're having to readjust and figure out how to, how to take care of yourself. So there's some of that. There's ongoing trauma, as you mentioned, uh, with police brutality uh, and, and things that are playing out. Um, I'm a social media user as well, so I think I get overwhelmed literally every day getting on and learning about another police killing, another violence, um, or just not just what's happening here in the U.S., the things that are happening globally. Uh, and, of course, there's always political tensions. And so right now uh, we're in election season, and so that's something that's impacting a lot of, a lot of individuals, a lot of mixed feelings for people. Uh, and so people are not just dealing with the issues they dealt with before the pandemic. They're dealing with that and everything else that's unfolding. Um, so the pandemic has really been impacting people's mental health most of the time in a negative way. But there are also some people who've been able to sort of reevaluate um, their values and, and sort of how to make decisions that, that are congruent with what they value and um, so I'm not saying it's negative for everyone, but it's definitely been challenging for a lot of people. I guess kind of going into the topic of, um, we talked about this in our first podcast with um, psychology professor, and I'd love to hear your input on it too, um, just so that 
people can understand the impacts that racism can have on one's mental health. Um, if you can kind of dive into that and in terms of like looking at it from like a clinical psychologist perspective. Mm -hmm. So racism has a lot of negative effects, right? Um, there's the emotional, psychological, physical, spiritual, social, all of the dimensions that I talked about earlier are impacted as a result of racism, as a result of microaggressions, whether they're implicit or explicit. So um, this has been the experience of many people for a very, very long time. Uh, this is the first time that I think we're, as, as a society, as a country, it, it's sort of highlighted or, or broadcasted even more. Uh, and there are different conversations as to why people are wondering, is it happening more now? Or is it because of social media and recording that people have access to this? And so racism has always had a negative and adverse impact on individuals who or on the receiving end. And so it increases stress, anxiety, depression, trauma. Um, there's a racial trauma that, that occurs for a lot of folks. Um, and again, you know, we're just talking about what's been coming up since the pandemic, but if you factor in everything else, even before that, there are people who've dealt with this and continue to deal with it. So uh, it's pretty tough. Um, I know, especially for college students, big piece is this lack of sense of belonging and feeling like they're an imposter, for, for example, for being at the school like USC. And I talked about my own experience from undergrad where you just feel like you don't belong. And there's a sense that that place was never designed or created with you in mind. And so what's it like to have to navigate that? So it takes a lot of mental strength and endurance um, to keep going and I don't want to just focus on the negatives, though, because a lot of times uh, communities who've been impacted by racism and microaggressions, uh, and this, this is not just with race, but there are other identity pieces as well, the marginalization experience, are very resilient. So I don't like to just talk about like, oh, you know, they're just so beaten all the time. This is a daily experience. I really want to highlight that. Uh, there's a lot of strength and resilience that individuals have as well as they, as they have to learn and navigate these things on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so right now, again, it's, it's just much challenging. It's much more challenging because we're in a pandemic. Uh, we're limited from having social contact, especially face-to-face -face social contact, community support. Uh, some people are just experiencing isolation uh, and phone connection just isn't enough. And you're constantly bombarded with negative news and videos and things like that. So um, you just have to be aware that, again, not only does it impact psychological, emotional health, it also shows up physically. So when people start to get sick a lot more often, um, that's kind of one sign. Uh, some people may go on to develop even chronic medical conditions. So uh, that's where, again, the holistic health piece come, comes into place because we're constantly assessing how are you feeling it, right? Sometimes if, you, if you're not even aware what's happening psychologically or you've had to learn to override that, what's happening in your body and how are you feeling as, as a spiritual being, meaning what, what's your motivation, what's your drive? Do you feel like there's meaning in life and are you connected to something else outside of yourself? So all of these areas. Um, end up getting impacted. I guess touching upon like, kind of like what you talked about, there's a lot of overwhelming challenges that students and like, I guess people in general have to face during these times. Um, what do you think are some like practical steps that people can take to navigate through them? 
Um, so practical steps, I always like to start with self-care because that's something I have to do as well. Uh, be intentional, making sure that uh, am I aware? So self-care really what it means is having an awareness that you have different needs, right? And, and it's not, self-care is not luxury, it's necessity. Um, and so recognizing that, uh, pausing to see, are these different dimensions of self taken care of? So uh, for example, um, if I'm just working all the time and I'm not taking lunch breaks, I'm, I'm continuing to work in the evening and then my sleep is off or I'm always on social media and, and, and like the news is starting to get to me, then you know it's going to be hard to really sustain myself and to find hope and to, to feel like I can keep going. Um, and so my advice is slow down and pause to see what's coming up. Uh, that means you're looking at uh, your schedule sometimes. You're also looking at your emotions. So uh, if you're waking up every day feeling tired, even after sleeping like seven hours or eight hours, then you have to start wondering what's making me tired? You know, how am I going to sleep? Uh, what was the day like? Um, so self-care practices really allow us to stay connected. Um, so one is, you know, kind of assessing what you need. The other piece is social connection. We're social creatures. We need people, right? Uh, and again, the pandemic has been a big barrier. And so we have to get very creative and figuring out how do we maintain this connection, right? Uh, it could feel like, you know, I, I'm tired of being on Zoom all day. I don't even want to FaceTime anybody else. But, you know, maybe if you don't want to FaceTime, how do you at least still pick up the phone call, pick up the phone and call someone? Um, I know this is something that I've even had to deal with, which is we also have to initiate, right? We can't just wait for people to reach out to us because oftentimes what I hear is I'm by myself, no one's checking in, I'm isolated, I'm feeling lonely. And in that conversation, that's when, especially with students, that's when I'm able to learn, like, when was the last time you called a friend or you texted a friend? Chances are they, they could probably validate your experiences and they may be going through some of it, right? Um, so social connection is really important. As I mentioned, um, creating some kind of balance or wellness is important, especially as students uh, and myself as a professional and students work and go to school as well. It feels like that dominates your entire life, right? You don't have any space to to just rest, to enjoy those things that you enjoy. So it's important to know, again, your time, managing your time in a way that's effective as much as possible. And then again, for uh, people who may identify as religious or spiritual, it's what else outside of yourself can you connect with, right? Uh, some people, it's a religious community. Maybe it's a practice, like they they pray, they like to read a text um, uh, from their own religious community, but for others, it's more so they're not religious, they like to just connect with the nature, right? They want to be out, outdoors, maybe near a beach or outside. Um, so really tap into those things that um, that keeps you going, because otherwise it just makes it harder. So again, this is an active approach, not passive. And that's something that we we sometimes forget, all of us, that things just don't get better on their own. Sometimes we actually have to to try to make sure that some of these things are um, paid attention to and managed. Um, kind of also want to go into the topic of seeking help. Obviously, with these practical steps, a lot of times um, people want to figure out what this process on their own, but sometimes you do need to initiate, as you said, initiate getting help or initiate talking to someone. 
Um, so first thing I want to touch on would be why should students engage with USC counseling and mental health? Why should they be seeking um, help? What's what's what can they provide? What can you provide for them? I guess as a clinical psychologist, and then after that we can touch into the topic of um, the POC community and why um, one of the topics that I we talked about with the professor that we had on our first podcast was the importance of having a mental health counselor that specializes or has experience in terms of helping students of color um, with their mental health. Yes. So let me come back to the first question, uh, why USC counseling and mental health? And so the first thing I would say is um, counseling for sure is an important step. We all can benefit from counseling, including myself. Um, so on one hand, we do have to destigmatize this piece that you must be weak or you must be crazy or something must be wrong for you to go to counseling. We believe it or not, those stigmas still exist. Uh, they don't exist to, to the same extent that they existed when I was in college. I think a lot more people are actually open to coming to counseling, especially in the state of California. So that's a good thing, but we just need to normalize it. Um, the other piece is sometimes it may just be a friend you need to talk to or a mentor. Um, and so I like to remind students that, you know, get support from anywhere. It doesn't just have to be counseling. Because uh, for some communities or some individuals, it's just so foreign and they're just not quite sure what they can share. And that's why the less talk the program we have within counseling is really effective for those students who are just not quite sure how counseling works or maybe they don't really want to formally get counseling support. Um, so think about just the informal supports you could receive, first of all. But as far as counseling at USC, um, the, the Counseling Mental Health Service, we provide short-term therapy. Uh, time-limited therapy, and that's, again, that's not unique to USC. This is across the nation. There's increase in demand, which means, you know, the sessions are much shorter now to ensure that other students have access to care. Um, and this this service is paid through the student health fee, so students are not having to pay extra money to see someone like myself or another therapist within CMH. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, so counseling can be a very effective thing. Uh, to address really anything. So sometimes the other piece is students aren't sure what they can go to counseling for. Like if I'm having a, a roommate difficulty or I just went through a breakup, like can I still go to counseling? Absolutely, right? So it kind of ranges. Everybody comes into counseling with different presenting concerns. And so if you find yourself that you're feeling stuck, you just you aren't able to problem solve and you're not quite sure you're, how you're feeling and how to manage these feelings, then come to counseling. Um, apart from individual counseling, we do offer various resources. So for example, we do have groups that we offer that are self-based or, or relationship focused or interpersonal. Um, so the benefit of these groups is that uh, it's so powerful and, and I've seen it when I've ran groups to sit with other peers who are in the same life stage and saying, you too, me too, but I thought I was the only one. I hear this so many times. I thought I was the only one who's dealing with this. So by being in groups, you're able to not only learn from the professional, but you're also able to learn how other peers are managing it. So those groups are unlimited. Students can join from however many groups they want throughout the year. So groups are also a really effective uh, way. The other piece I talked about, less talk. Uh, we also offer workshops. Uh, so the two that are ongoing are like how to manage anxiety and the other one is sleep difficulties because I feel like those come up 
so much for a lot of different students. So it's knowing and accessing those resources. Um, within Ingeman, of course, we have the medical side as well. We have dietitians. So again, um, I know sometimes with students who experience like chronic stress or anxiety, your appetite is suppressed, right? So, and you need food to have, to keep going, to have energy. So again, it's knowing what are those resources that you have. You can just quickly set up an appointment and learn more about that area. And so um, that's why, again, I recommend <coughs> counseling and mental health. We also help students with referrals. So let's say a student does know that they want, you know, long-term therapy. They want to meet with, um, you know, a therapist off campus that just kind of keeps it separate. Uh, we assist with that process as well. We have care coordinators. Um, so again, lots of reasons to to seek support and just tackle issues that are coming up. Um, and then could you touch on um, the importance of having a mental health counselor or therapist who has experience working with students, uh, with people of color or students who um, are kind of dealing with what's going on in terms of police brutality and the social justice movement? Mm -hmm. um, so this has been, you know, a, a hot topic for, for quite a while, but more so recently. And so it is important that uh, we have representation, right? Uh, not just in counseling, that should be the case in your classes, with your professors, between various spaces where you're getting care. Uh, represent, representation really matters. Um, I hear this so often from students, and I, and I truly believe that as well. Um, that matters because it's about safety. Uh, and so for some students, like I mentioned, uh, if you really understand the political, the historical uh, context of what they've had to manage and deal with, uh, students feel like it's much safer to go sit with someone who looks like them or who identifies as them. So those are the pieces that I think uh, increasingly there's an understanding as to why that's important for uh, good mental health care. I do want to say this, though, that all psychologists, all therapists are trained to do multicultural work. Um, so that's part of our training. It's just that, of course, uh, just like, you know, when I go to a doctor and it excites me to see another female doctor, black doctor, it's the same experience of like, at least I want to start with something there and build off of that. And so when there's a lot of unrest and tension, anxiety, I think it could be helpful to have um, you know, providers of color really be present in those spaces. Uh, we all want to feel seen and understood. And sometimes the common statement I hear from students is that they don't want to teach a counselor about their uh, experience or their community and background before they do counseling. And, and I totally understand that it's not your responsibility as a client to teach the therapist exactly all of the experiences you've dealt with. Of course, there's some things you would answer because just because you belong in a particular community doesn't mean you have the same experience as everybody else. So those things still have to be sorted out, but it is important again that clients feel seen and understood, particularly BIPOC students and LGBTQ students. Historically, um, as you know, there's health disparities. So there, have, there hasn't been providers or not as many providers who could readily see students. And so uh, that's shifting. I know that's something we pay attention to in our hiring practices, uh, at least at USC within CMH. Um, but it is such an important thing for you know individuals' health and well-being. 
Um, I mentioned earlier that you know I, I work very closely with the cultural centers on campus as well as other you know departments on campus, but oftentimes because I have the opportunity to sit with students, uh, and we also have liaisons who are sort of deployed to to do a lot of prevention, education, and outreach in these areas. We we actually get to hear directly from students about what they want and why they want. We try to tailor our services based on that. So if someone says it's really important for them to see a, a, a female provider, a person of color, LGBTQ identifying, then we try to figure out how to make that happen. Other times there may be limitations and we try to explain what would be sort of the pros and cons of seeing a clinician who may not fit that criteria and how do we still make sure that the student has access to who they prefer. So sometimes it's at CMH, other times it's not. Uh, but we definitely do a lot of work to make sure that people get what they need, but there's a lot of education involved as well. Um, so kind of going back to the topic of like um, seeking out help from like uh, UFC counseling services, um, for someone who's like not necessarily facing these kind of mental health problems themselves, but has a friend who's uh, going through difficult times, mm -hmm. uh, what kind of suggestions would you give to like be a helpful ally? Yeah. I think we're in a time where it's not just students, but adults, you know, faculty, staff are kind of nervous about how to help someone, right? Which is such a unique time in my experience of doing a lot of outreach and prevention, you know, on college campuses. That says a lot about how our society is shifting and changing, right? Uh, usually when you want to be an ally or a good friend, you're not being a therapist necessarily. You're just saying, hey, what's wrong? I'm here to listen. What do you need? Can I get your food? Can I just sit with you? Can I spend time with you? And then when you when you learn of information that you feel like this is beyond my capacity, then the next step is how do you help someone connect to more of the professional resource? Now, sometimes it's counseling, other times it may be like campus support and intervention. So it does help to know what resources are available on campus and what, what might be a good fit for a student. Um, but that's why there's like this whole movement around mental health first aid training or psychological first aid. Uh, there's a lot more emphasis on that because what we're learning is people are just, when someone starts to cry and someone's feeling overwhelmed, people don't know what to do. Because the assumption is that person's really just, you know, they're going through something so tough that they're not equipped to help that person. Uh, and to me, that might be the case in some situations, but really is about just being human. Um, so ask the basic questions that you would ask anybody or questions you would want to be asked by starting with, you know, what's going on? What do you need? Just listening. You don't even have to offer advice. I think sometimes the pressure is like, I have to tell them something that's useful. Sometimes listening is actually one of the most powerful things you can do for a person. Uh, from there, let's say you've done counseling and you've had a personal experience. If you feel comfortable, you can say, hey, you know, I've gone to counseling and counseling could really be helpful, even if you go for a little bit. So that's one way to kind of help people buy into this whole idea of counseling. If you haven't, you can still say, you know, I think counseling could be a, a very helpful resource. Would you want to try it? Do you want me to help you schedule that? Um, I, I say that to say not that you have to kind of do a lot of the legwork, but basically you can help that person look up like the counseling um, number, you know, counseling center phone number. Um, and so you can give them that number and say, hey, let's just call right now and set up something. The other way is to go to my SHR and students are able to sort of book their own appointment. 
web booking. A lot of students are actually doing that. So those are like the simple steps, but it may feel huge for someone who's really dealing with a lot, right? And so there's, those are sort of the practical steps of you saying, that, let's try to do this and see if you like it and if it will work out. Um, other times, like I mentioned, it could just be contacting campus support and intervention. I don't know how much you two know about that. It's sort of the central location on campus or department that assists students with any type of problem or crisis. Uh, so they help address complex issues. And so let's say a student is falling really behind in school and they don't know what to do. So that's a great place to start because they, they sort of help brainstorm with the student about, okay, is there a way for you to catch up? Would you want to take an incomplete? Do you need to take a leave of absence? So they, they talk to students about the different options they have. Uh, the same with the cultural center. So sometimes if a student's feeling overwhelmed and they're crying or, you know, that they're starting to kind of engage in behaviors that you're concerned about, for example, like they're constantly isolated, they don't really leave their room or they're engaging in, in heavy substance use and you're like, that's not like that person, what's going on? Trust your instinct, trust your gut to check in again uh, and think about resources that you can connect to people. Like I mentioned, the cultural centers could be a home base. Uh, by going there or by connecting to those resources, they could feel like, you know, I, I belong. For others, it's just joining you know, student clubs, student orgs. Um, and so there are lots of different resources. You don't have to necessarily know all of them, but, but start with like, even if you start with counseling center, we can help connect students. Or if you start with campus support and intervention, we can, we, they can also connect students to various resources. Did that answer your question? Yeah, um, I kind of had like a follow-up question to that. Like, mm -hmm. um, I guess in a more severe case, like let's say I'm a friend to someone who has like a severe mental health case that like I think might need professional help, but then that person like either because of stigma or for whatever reason just doesn't want to seek professional help. Like, mm -hmm. what do you think uh, someone should do in that kind of scenario? Yes. So it, again, depending on the severity of what they're dealing with, if there's severe mental illness, or even sometimes suicidality, right? That's something that can come up quite a bit. Um, and, and you're asking questions to understand what's their struggle, what's happening right now, what what do how do we need to intervene? Um, are you familiar with Children's Care for Children's reporting system? Uh, no. Okay. So it's, it's a reporting system that exists. It's within campus support and intervention. Uh, it's anonymous. So you can literally submit an anonymous report uh, and you can list your concern about this person. You're not quite sure how to help. They don't want to get help. And then a professional staff will follow up. They won't say who made that report. They'll just try to kind of come around that student and say, hey, like, how are you doing? What do you need? How are classes going? Right. They will sort of try to bring in the person so that they're able to support. Right now, because of the pandemic, how things are all virtual, you can still submit the report. Uh, campus support and intervention will reach out, you know, via email, phone call, you know, maybe a, a virtual appointment. Uh, but it's important that you know your options because you're right, sometimes some people, they are too afraid or they, they would tell you flat out, I don't want to go to counseling. And you know in your gut that they probably benefit from counseling. So, don't be the only one, the only person holding on to that. Uh, sometimes as much as you might think it, it will create some kind of tension between you and that person, 
see who else you can get involved so that they can be encouraged. So sometimes it could be like another friend. So when there's more of you expressing concern, then they will likely maybe go along with your recommendation. Sometimes you need to notify an RA because let's say a student's like always in their bed and they don't want to leave, right? That's another concern. Uh, heavy substance use and, and reckless behavior. Again, who you know, who in that person's life can you talk to to say, hey, I'm, I'm concerned about so-and-so. They really need help. So uh, we don't also, we don't want counseling to feel punitive because sometimes it feels that way for some individuals that like they are made to go to counseling. And when that's the case, it, it just doesn't work. So apart from providing education, apart from providing encouragement and offering like practical steps and helping them, you know, call and make the appointment, um, you can always ask other people to help you. Um, at Counseling and Mental Health, you can also call. We have our we have a crisis support that's available 24-7. So you can literally call in the middle of the night, on the weekend, at any time. And you yourself can call on behalf of that other student. You can say, hey, I'm calling because I'm concerned about my friend so-and-so or my roommate so-and-so, and I don't know what to do because they don't want to get help. So a professional counselor for CMH can kind of help you brainstorm as to what the next steps may be. So you have that supportive counseling, but you can also do Trojan Cares for Trojan um, report as well. Thank you um, so much for going into those resources. That was going to be my last question because we're coming to the end of this podcast. Do you have any other resources that you'd like to mention for students that they can utilize? And then is there anything else that you'd like to say before we end this interview? Yeah, in terms of resources, and again, that's what I love about big institutions like USC, there are tons of resources on campus. And most of them you qualify for is just is knowing where, where they're at, why they exist. And so uh, the best way to do that, again, is start with your central location, like Campus Support and Intervention or CMH are great resources for you to know what else exists out there. Mm -hmm. uh, so please contact us. Um, other times ask your peers, so maybe they know of a resource that you're not aware. So info sharing could be really helpful. And um, other times you can always Google search as well. I do that quite a bit, even within USC, like, huh, I'm curious about this thing. So if it's something I haven't learned about, then I try to see if there's anything that exists. Yeah. Um, so try doing that. Um, usually in your course syllabus there, you know, towards the end of the, the syllabus, there's always resources that are listed like Title IX, yeah. um, OED office, um, again, DPS, there's also DSP, Disability Services and Programs. So again, there are lots of resources. You can always find their website. You can always call them to ask more information about whether or not that'll be a good fit. Um, but you know, try that, but also reach out to us if it's easier. Um, as we wrap up, I guess the main thing I want to say is, first of all, thank you to you two for, for really allowing me to be here today and for offering me the opportunity to just reflect and share about my journey, uh, my life, and also the work that I do that's near and dear to my heart. Um, counseling, like I said, is really amazing. It's for everyone. Um, all of us can use it. And so keep that in mind. Um, challenge yourself. If, if it's stigma that prevents you from asking or seeking help, uh, just know that those stigmas do exist. Um, oftentimes they're societal messages, cultural messages, sometimes even family messages, but uh, there's a way, hopefully, that you can find a way to get past that. Even if you're not sure, you can still come, try it, 
Um, counseling is a confidential resource, so what you share isn't shared with others. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Uh, but we're here to help, and, and I think we're doing some really exciting things at USC. I would say that for myself, since I've returned, it just feels like there's a lot more opportunity to improve the student the student experience on campus. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're very committed, and yeah, so just want to say fight on, and I'm just happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was such an insightful conversation. I think there's going to be a lot that our listeners can get out of um, what you've expressed today. Um, so I hope you stay safe and healthy and have a great um, rest of your weekend. Thanks, everyone. I'll see you around. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. It's not a game. It's a red stick.